Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Bijan Kajapur, managing partner at Eurasian Nexus Partners, a Vienna-based international strategic consulting firm, and the columnist for El Monitor. Now, the Biden administration has said there has been, quote, some progress in the ongoing nuclear talks in Vienna, and there indeed seems to be some momentum after a slow start to the negotiations. Israel, as we have reported here at El Monitor, has assessed that a nuclear deal with Iran is likely this year. Iran's economy, which has suffered from U.S. restrictions on Iranian financial transactions and oil exports would get a boost from the lifting of sanctions if there is a nuclear deal. How strong is the economic incentive for Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi to close the deal with world powers to revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or Iran nuclear deal? I can't think of anyone better to address that question than Bijan Kajapur. And that conversation begins now. Bijan, welcome back to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's great to be back. Bijan, the nuclear talks continue in Vienna. There appears to be some traction and a sense of urgency, at least among the statements of some of the Western powers. It also seems that there is a powerful economic incentive for Iran to return to compliance and rejoin the JCPOA if there is the chance to get sanctions lifted to help the Iranian economy. Maybe you could start by giving us a quick overview of the Iranian economy, its challenges, including the impact of sanctions reimposed by the Trump administration in May 2018, when the U.S. exited from the nuclear deal, and how this all affects President Raisi's calculations for a deal in Vienna. Sure. Um... I think the best way to understand uh, the status quo of the Iranian economy is to imagine the Iranian economy as a, um, as a building that is gradually eroding because of lack of investments. Basically, when um, the US, the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA and sanctions were reimposed, um, Iran experienced a couple of um, uh, years that can only be described with uh, the word stagflation. So stagnation and inflation, uh, both eating into the, the essence of the economy and also into, into the purchasing power uh, of the Iranian society in general, and especially the middle and lower income classes. So today, three years later, more than three years later, we have a situation where the, the building, the house that I was just referring to, still stands, it's, it's not going to collapse. It's an important realization to know that this house, this economy is not going to collapse. It has enough inner strength and, and inner um, uh, capacity to, to stand, but it is being, uh, basically it's in severe need of investments. Uh, and if in these investments don't emerge, obviously it will move 
closer and closer to a position where you cannot utilize it anymore. The economy does not have enough inner strength, strength anymore. That's the situation. Basically, if you look at the last two years, uh, the last two Iranian years, um, the Iranian, the, the amount of um, new investments in the economy was lower than the amount um, of um, uh, basically depreciation inside the economy, which shows that the content, the inner essence of this economy is being eroded and that obviously has an impact. Why do I say that? Because to, to reverse this tendency, to re reverse this process of erosion, the Iranian economy will need investments. And part of these investments will have to come from the government, part of them from the non-governmental economic players, and potentially also part of it as foreign investment. And the only event, the only event that will allow all these three processes to happen is a lifting of sanctions, because then the government can access its internationally blocked assets. You know that the Iranian economy as a whole has probably close to $100 billion of of assets outside Iran, most of them being frozen on international accounts because of US sanctions. Uh, the private economy and the non-governmental players can also access their assets. And potentially there would be uh, foreign investors who would then come into the economy and fill the gap. Basically the, the, uh, the stagflation of the past few years will have to be reversed over the next few years. It's not something that will happen quickly, but it has to start soon before the economy suffers and especially the Iranian uh, families suffer more and there is more poverty and, and stagflation in the country. So if we want to put some figures now into this frame, uh, the economy has actually returned to moderate growth. It's, it's grew by about 2% in the last Iranian year after uh, uh, basically a decline of a, a cumulative decline of 11% in 2018 and 19. It grew by 2%. It's expected to grow by 3% this Iranian year, which ends in March, and is projected to grow by about three, three and a half percent next year. So the moderate growth has returned, but inflation is around 40%. Uh, and there is a huge budget deficit that the government is uh, the government is experiencing. So there are a lot of negative news. There is, as I said, the erosion of the economy, but it has returned to some sort of growth. But this growth is not enough to really reverse the trends that I was talking about. Let me pick up on uh, your comment about foreign investment if sanctions were lifted. If you were a foreign investor, in what sectors of the Iranian economy would you invest? And would you consider investment in the Iranian economy um, a reasonable risk, given the history of corruption and the lack of transparency and overall inefficiencies? Um, obviously, it depends on, uh, on the enterprise organization or whatever the foreign investor that comes into the picture and also depends on the sector, as you mentioned. Um, I would generally say that there are a lot of um, opportunities uh, 
for international investors in the Iranian market. One, because the market itself is a, is a large and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, sizable and resourceful economy. But secondly, another uh, factor that plays into the decision-making processes of investors, it is a hub in a very important region. You know, it's uh, the, the Iranian market plus all the different neighbors where the Iranian economy has established uh, uh, efficient and uh, you know, reliable links, whether it's transit links or, or operational links or, or uh, also uh, trade links. Uh, we are talking about a market of four to 500 million people when you include Turkey and Pakistan and Iraq and Central Asia and so on. So the, the opportunities are there. The two questions, the two sort of risks that one has to evaluate, one is the risk of sanctions, even if, if uh, the Vienna talks lead to the lifting of sanctions, there will still be one, sanctions that are still in place. And second, um, the, the obviously the risk of US sanctions, especially returning. So one, you have to evaluate sanctions and two, you have to, as you said, evaluate all the internal risks, whether it's corruption or mismanagement or, or political risks and so on. So it will always be a, 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 a sort of a risk analysis uh, on sectors, but one could theoretically look at some of the sectors that are not sanctioned or won't be sanctioned, like the food sector and the pharmaceutical sector. Both these sectors offer opportunities and there are some capacities in Iran that could be uh, you know, targets for international investors, whether it's a question of mergers and acquisitions or a question of uh, joint ventures to build new capacities. So opportunities will be there, but my answer to potential investors is always do a, a, a risk analysis, look at all the different risks, but don't dismiss Iran just on the surface because there is a lot more opportunity than meets the eye. Let me come back to a statement you made earlier about um, Iran's projected budget deficit. You wrote in Amwaj this week that Iran's budget revenue projections may be unrealistic. Even with higher projected oil revenues, there, could, there will be a deficit. And you don't see the path for growth as, and if I understand you, uh, that kind of analysis would be your projection unless sanctions are lifted. Is that correct? Um, absolutely. I think we, have, we are dealing potentially with uh, three scenarios. One scenario is sanctions are not lifted. And in that case, uh, I argue that both the, the export revenues, petroleum export revenues, and also the tax revenues won't materialize. I mean, the, the, the new budget has actually uh, projected a more than 60% increase in tax revenues uh, for the Iranian government in the next Iranian year. And um, it will be very unrealistic if sanctions are not lifted. Uh, so the, the scenario one, sanctions are not lifted, it will be very unrealistic. Scenario two uh, is the sort of um, medium uh, scenario. Some sanctions are lifted because of the Vienna talks and others are not lifted. In that scenario, especially if the government can access its hard currency reserves, uh, 
then some degree of um, growth uh, is possible. But we should not forget that the Iranian government as a whole is lagging behind all its planned infrastructure investments and all its planned um, you know, uh, expansions of capacities and so on. Uh, and even if it materializes all the revenues that it has planned for uh, uh, the next Iranian year, it will still have to deal with a lot of the, the gaps that have been created over the past three years. So again, in this scenario, it will be difficult. The only scenario where, uh, let's say, a balanced budget could emerge and the government will have resources to actually invest and spend as it has planned is if the sanctions are lifted. And that creates the sense of urgency that you were referring to at the very beginning of our, of our talk. It's very important to realize that uh, to have some degree of a balanced economic development in the country, sanctions should be lifted, not just because Iran will have access to its resources, but also that it can um, reduce the current cost of trade. Right now, Iranian exporters and Iranian importers have additional costs because they cannot uh, transfer money directly between Iran and, and the target countries, and because they can, in some cases, not import their, their products or export their products directly. These, these additional costs uh, could potentially amount to 10% of trade in Iran. So if we have a, in total, import-export trade volume of more than $100 billion, uh, the Iranian economy is spending $10 billion a year on the costs of transactions. And sanctions would basically eliminate or min minimize these costs. And that will be also important to the Iranian economy. Let's come back to that sense of urgency. You know, I mentioned it in the context of the US and Western leaders saying that, uh, you know, time is uh, running out uh, for there to be a deal. Is it your sense that Iranian leaders as well have a sense of urgency for the economic reasons you mentioned, because they have also touted the so-called resistance economy, that Iran can weather the storm if sanctions continue. As you said, the building is, is still holding. Uh, you've written about this. What do they mean by the resistance economy? Is it all bravado? And how is would Iran fare? You laid out one of the scenarios if there is no deal. I mean, what would be the immediate expectation? Um, first of all, I think it's a it's a more accurate translation if we uh, translate the word اقتصاد uh, as resilient economy. Uh, I mean, it, it got into literature as resistance economy and everyone stuck to it. But what the Iranian leaders mean is to create an economy that's more resilient towards external pressure and sanctions and so on. Um, the question is, have they managed that? And the answer to that is uh, to some extent, not uh, the economy is not efficient enough uh, to deal with some of the uh, imbalances that are created um, by sanctions and pressure, uh, but it has uh, developed some uh, remedies, if you want, to external sanctions. And uh, one of the responses to that uh, is that there is obviously more and more um, domestic capacity building. One of the interesting um, 
indicators, economic indicators, is that in the midst of all of this um, high inflation and budget deficit and so on, unemployment is actually uh, decreasing. Uh, so the, the economy is creating more and more jobs. We can always argue that some of the jobs that are being created are not um, sustainable in the long run. But the fact is that there is less unemployment today than we had in 2018. And that's partly because of the domestic capacity building. Uh, and as I said, it is, it is a sizable economy. And, and once you um, sort of uh, reduce the amount of imports because of lack of hard currency or because of sanctions, then domestic producers will manage to produce more and, and build new capacities and create jobs. So um, if sanctions uh, stay in place and if there is no deal, the Iranian economy will try to um, increase efficiency because the fact is, and it's actually a very interesting uh, fact that has been in Iranian planning for the past decade or so, but they haven't really materialized that. Uh, in the past 10 years, every year, when you look at the, um, the sort of breakdown of growth um, plans, about two to 3% of growth plans in every single year uh, was supposed to come from efficiency growth. And there is enough lack of efficiency because of low energy prices, because of mismanagement, because of poor governance and so on. So one of the things that the government will have to do, there is no choice but to do that, is to increase efficiency. And that could be a genuine campaign against corruption, a genuine campaign to increase the governance efficiencies on provincial level, on, on national level, and so on. And then, for example, address issues like uh, energy inefficiency uh, by addressing fuel prices, by by changing um, building standards and so on. So there is still some capacity to generate growth, but it is limited. I mean, it will save Iran over the next few years, save when I say save in the sense of that there will be some growth, but as I said before, it's not sufficient growth. The Iranian economy is an economy because of its demography, because of its needs, it will need growth rates around seven, 8% per annum. And if it grows by three, four percent for a few years, it is not creating enough jobs and enough opportunities. And then that will lead to also what we have experienced in the past few years, to capital flight, to brain drain, all of factors that actually continue to eat into the substance of the economy. And that's, that will continue, unfortunately, if sanctions are not lifted. Do you think Raisi sees that dour uh, scenario and therefore wants a deal in Vienna? I'm not sure if Raisi himself and, and maybe his, his confidants see that, but I think that if you look at the, the entirety of the strategic decision makers, whether it's in the parliament or in the expediency council, uh, in, in different universities that advise the, the government, there are enough people who see this urgency and are communicating that to President Raisi and others. Also the business community sees that. The Iranian business community obviously would like to have uh, 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 less 
uh, impediments uh, in its work, both in terms of sanctions, but also in terms of uh, internal impediments from corruption and mismanagement and so on. So it is this, this sense of urgency from the business and economic players is definitely being communicated to the president. But as we know, um, there are always other uh, considerations that the top leadership have to take into account. But I do believe that um, the pragmatic forces in the country are urging the government and the decision makers to, to, to move towards some sort of a settlement in the Vienna talks. What about the popular politics of the nuclear deal? If we go back to 2015, we recall that when Foreign Minister Zarif uh, returned from the talks, there were parades uh, that he was greeted as a, a hero. Uh, Iranian growth uh, took off. It was the sense, I think, at the time that the deal was uh, quite popular, especially among younger people and the, the middle class, and was considered probably the most significant diplomatic achievement of the revolutionary government since 1979. Obviously, that perception took a hit in 2018 uh, as the principalists moved into power in, in, in the parliament and lots of criticism in the media of, of, of former President Rouhani and, and Zarif. Where do people stand now on the nuclear deal? Is it still something that... Uh, average Iranians want to see? And would Raisi get a kind of a political bounce if he went ahead and implemented the deal? I think uh, the popular sentiment in 2015 and the popular sentiment today uh, will be two different ones. In 2015, in my view, the, the main source of um, sort of positive development or the, the sense of positivist uh, development was a sense of dignity, a sense of returning to the international community after being sanctioned for, for, for a decade or so. Um, that sense of dignity, which is obviously a very important part of the, uh, of the Iranian culture, um, that, as you said, uh, was disappointed in 2018 with the uh, with the reintroduction of sanctions and with uh, maximum pressure and also with the entire literature that the Trump administration used against Iran. Um, in two, 2022, um, I think the economic aspects and the socioeconomic aspects of a nuclear deal will be more important. People have lost their trust or their belief in in especially the United States, but in the West as a whole, um, that you know the West cannot be trusted. They really put a lot of uh, emotion, if you want, into into the nuclear deal uh, as as a way of uh, paving the way for a different relationship, and that sort of collapse. But today, if President Raisi manages to um, either revive the nuclear deal or find a solution to, to reduce, um, reduce sanctions and, and improve the economic conditions, that is what will be uh, the source of positivism in the Iranian public, not necessarily 
a, a new opportunity to reestablish ties with Western countries. That sort of, in my view, has been damaged severely as a result of, on the one side, the US action, but also the lack of action on the European side, the, the lack of effort on the European side to really try to uh, give some economic benefits to Iran after the Trump withdrawal. Uh, to underline that it's a lot more about socioeconomic realities. I want to just also mention, for example, many people ask this question, how is the mood uh, now that we are now almost six months into a new government? The mood changed in Iran a lot to, towards a positive mood because of, um, for example, a successful vaccination campaign by the new government. You can always argue that the pro-Raisi forces or the hardliners, they impeded uh, the Rouhani government's efforts to vaccinate the Iranian people. But fact is that from the, the, the average citizen in Iran, from their perspective, uh, since Raisi has become president, there is a successful vaccination campaign. The number of uh, daily death uh, toll is reducing strongly. We are, we are in August when Raisi took over, there were unfortunately four to 500 deaths per day, per day in, due to Corona. Today it's below 50. And, and these emotions are important. So people have become a lot more focused on their, uh, on their so social and economic needs. And that's, you can say, one of the, um, one of the consequences of sanctions um, eating into purchasing power and making people poorer so that they actually have to be a lot more focused uh, on their economic and social needs rather than on their political and international needs. You mentioned Iran's frustration with the West. Uh, Raisi seems to want to look East for its economic and trade ties, including with Russia and China. How do you see Iran's relationships with both countries at this point both in the JCPOA talks and more broadly, and what can Iran expect from Russia and China if there is no nuclear deal? I think Iran's expectation from Russia and China uh, come down to, to the economic needs I just, I just mentioned. Uh, as I said, Iran is a country, is an economy that needs international investors, and in some cases needs international technology. And if we don't get them from the West, then we have to look for other sources. Some in Iran argue that, you know, we should be focusing or Iran should be focusing on closer cooperation with Islamic uh, countries like Turkey, like Indonesia, like Malaysia and so on. And others say that what Iran needs, meaning technology and investment that can only come from larger powers, larger economies like China and, and, and Russia. Um, whether Iran will get it uh, is, and, and will be happy with it is another question, because it's, it's not the first time that we would expect Chinese investments in Iran. And, and some of the past investments from China have been rather disappointing, whether you look at the uh, petroleum sector or, or, or other sectors, especially the fact that um, the sort of Chinese the average Chinese investor usually also uh, brings its own workers and engineers to work on projects in a country like Iran. And the Iranian, the Iranian side, whether it's the government or the businesses and also the people, they expect 
the foreign investor to bring to create also jobs and opportunities and, and new markets. And that may not be the case with some of the investments from Eastern powers. So I think right now the choice is more because there is no other choice. If, if the West, uh, the Western bloc as a whole is not interested in, in investments in Iran because of the nuclear tensions and other tensions, um, then Iran will have no choice because the economy, the Iranian economy and its wealth of resources, whether it's in the petroleum sector or in the mining sector and so on, cannot really develop without international investors. Um, it, this is a fact. I mean, it's a wealthy economy, but it needs a lot more impetus from international investors to develop, to really materialize its potential. Um, and that also the hardliners know in Iran, even though they obviously try to, to find international partners that are politically more acceptable to Iran. John, I want to conclude by asking you about your relative and, and my friend of more than 30 years, Siamak Namazi, who remains a, a prisoner in Iran, as well as his father, who while under house arrest is, is also in, in failing health. Both are unjustly detained. What can you tell us about their cases and is there any movement toward their release? First of all, thank you for the question. Uh, it's, it's a very sad situation. I mean, Siamak has spent more than six years of, of the best years of his life unjustly detained in, in Evin and not only unjustly detained, he has, uh, you know, he has been denied the, the, the even legal uh, rights that the Iranian um, law, uh, you know, uh, provides. And for example, he has never been given any follow from, uh, from uh, prison, which is very sad. It's a very frustrating situation. Um, it's a, it, it, it's a, you know, there is no uh, uh, certainty to what may happen or can happen. Uh, there have been situations where we were hopeful that maybe the Iranian and the American sides will agree on uh, on a prisoner swap or some sort of a deal that would see the release of Bagher and Siamak and, and other dual nationals. But uh, it has never materialized, partly maybe because um, I think some stakeholders wanted to combine this deal, this, deal, this prisoner swap uh, or, or somehow do it in parallel to the nuclear deal. Now that there is a realization that the nuclear deal may take longer, I really hope that all of them come to their senses and, and put an end to this injustice because it is an injustice. And it is, in fact, from the Iranian perspective, um, the worst thing that Iran can do because in, in fact, talking about the future opportunities in Iran and the future potential of Iran, one of the biggest potentials Iran has is its diaspora. It's the, the millions of Iranians that live outside, especially in Western countries who could help with, you know, investments, with training, with technology transfers. What the hardliners have achieved through these arrests is really to scare Iranian dual nationals from returning to Iran. I really hope that they come to their senses and, and release all the dual nationals, especially Siamak who has been held longest. Uh, and that way also reestablish some sort of a respectful relationship with the Iranian diaspora. Um, I really hope that a solution can be found soon.
Bijan, you two are a good friend of many years, a superb analyst. I, I always enjoy and learn from our conversations. Thank you for joining us today on On the Middle East and for your many contributions to our monitor over the years. Pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to future discussions. We will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest today, Bijan Kajapur, and our producer, Beowulf Rockland of Two Square Media Productions. If you haven't done so, please sign up for our three El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. Gilles' guest this month is His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al Faisal Asaud, who will be discussing his new book, The Afghanistan File. And on On Israel This Week with Ben Caspit, Ben speaks with former Israeli justice minister and peacemaker Yossi Balin. And next week on this podcast on the Middle East, I will be speaking with the amazing journalist and Yale Jackson Institute senior fellow, Janine De Giovanni. Janine is the author of The Vanishing, Faith, Loss, and the Twilight of Christianity in the Middle East. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the region at elmonitor.com. Elmonitor.